morning and welcome to this episode of Inside the Vault. Today, we're excited to have Blue Rock's Jeffrey Schwaber. Mr. Schwaber serves as the Chief Executive Officer of Blue Rock Capital Markets and oversees the company's capital markets, security sales, and distributions operations. As a 35-year veteran of the securities industry, Jeff brings a wealth of executive-level experience to Blue Rock. Jeff, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Stacy. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, we appreciate you uh, to, it's taking the time. I know you're busy. Uh, you guys uh, just make, are making tremendous waves in the industry and have been, uh, uh, are and have been tremendously successful, not only in raising capital, but also uh, in performing. So I want to congratulate uh, you for that right off the bat. And uh, we'll, we'll jump into our, our Q&A right now. So my first question, Jeff, is that, you know, institutional private equity real estate and Blue Rock's institutional real estate fund values are, are little to unchanged since the start of COVID-19, while publicly traded real estate fell radically, some say 44%, and it's still down 21%. So can you help explain how two credible real estate investment platforms can diverge so significantly? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, um, I, I would say for two reasons, correlation and, and efficiency, number one and two. Um, the publicly traded real estate markets are subject to in sympathy sell-offs and panic out selling due to the correlation of the, the, the public capital markets. Um, the publicly traded index, the RMZ fell, I, ca I can't quote it exactly, but I think it was around 1,250 right before COVID. And as you said, fell about 40, 44, 45% down to, I don't know, 700. Mm. So in no way indicative of the actual net asset value of the real estate. Obviously, a $100 million building was not worth 55 million in eight trading days. And then it had a 46% recovery in seven trading days. So you know, the, the public markets are subject to what's called program trading. These are algorithms that kicked in as a result of being a component of a particular index, whereas private institutional real estate really exempts our investors and, and, and investor um, from those radical swings. It's, it, it, it trades much more indicative of, of net asset value. And, and really, when you think about it, the only real owners other than our investors and a few others are these large institutions who don't panic out. They're generally net accumulators. And we find it to be a much more efficient market. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, it's been interesting to watch the, the publicly traded markets uh, since COVID um, and, and through the years as well. There's no doubt that they are a good investment. Uh, oh, there's but, no doubt. But they do swing. And, and that's what does not happen with institutional private real estate like what Blue Vault, uh, Blue Rock invests in. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, to be completely fair, at, there are times during these sell-offs that they trade at pretty substantial discounts to their net asset value, whereas institutional private equity real, real estate tends to equilibrate with its NAV. But, but um, there are times that you get these um, unreasonable surges to the upside in, private inst in, in, in public real estate. And of course, you can generate some pretty significant alpha. Yeah, so could we, could we end up saying that the private real estate is more stable? Can you say that? Is that yeah, fair? I, I would definitively, I, I would say that clearly. Okay. And history has, has shown it. 
So let's move on to another quick topic here. Um, Stanger reports sales numbers to the industry, and uh, they have reported that Blue Rock has emerged as the top equity raise sponsor of non-traded preferred stocks. And a lot of people may not know what a preferred stock is. You may want to just tell us that real quickly. But my question is, do you have any insights in, into what has driven this inflow to these preferred stocks, maybe beyond the obvious, which is that you, you guys are getting after it? What, what are some of the other uh, influencers? Also, what are the risks or what are the drivers that are uh, going forward that advisors should be aware of as they consider uh, allocating to preferred stock programs? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a great question, Stacy. They're, they're obviously um, preferred stocks, both traded and non-traded, have become much more in vogue uh, within the industry. Um, so the first part of your question was just a brief explanation of what preferred stock is. Right. You know, quite simply, um, it's it's a split of the of the equity capital stack, although some can be construed as debt. Um, and um, the preferred stock, although non-voting, places that investor in a priority position within the capital stack to receive their dividends and distributions, et cetera, in advance of the common stock. So investors tend to flock to that because you are in a, in a more protected and priority position to receive, uh, to receive income. Um, with regard to our, our flows, um, you know, I would say first and foremost, just globally speaking, that the market conditions and the sentiment of advisors and investors as times become more volatile and you can see, you know, these sell-offs right at the start of COVID, the Dow was just touching up against 30,000. It looked like we were going to break through, which was mind boggling considering we were at 6,500 on the Dow uh, at the trough of the great recession. So look, five bagger there, um, but uh, it's been wonderful for, for, for wealth creation. But um, within, I think 11 trading days, we went from 29.5 to 18,000. And then boom, uh, we're right back up at 28,000. So these, these are pretty, um, pretty volatile swings. The NASDAQ was at 9,800, it went to 6,600. And now it's had a breakout over 10,000, it actually touched 12. So you know, that's good to the upside, but we're not always gonna snap back in a V. We're gonna have a Nike swoosh, so to speak, one of these days. And, um, and I think investors really flock towards stability of pricing and income during volatile times. And that's exactly what a non-traded preferred uh, security is designed to do. It's, a, it's designed to come out at a stated value, maintain that stated value, pay a credible, repeatable, and reliable dividend. And, and I think investors are flocking to that. Um, as far as, as our um, uh, recent uh, surgence up to the, to the, to the top slot, um, uh, you know, uh, probably a, a lot of market acceptance and, and, and several years of uh, education and explanation uh, the fact that we are associated with a multi-billion dollar public company that trades on a major exchange, I think is a big part of it. Um, uh, dividend coverage is something that investors look, look to and, and we are um, in a very favorable position in that regard. And of course, we're largely institutionally owned by some very, very um, large, credible, well-known players. Uh, and, uh, and, and we have analyst coverage as well. So the more sort of corporate governance, the more visibility and, um, you generate, the more credibility, and, and we've been a net beneficiary of that. 
So there is no secret sauce to this? Is there a secret ingredient? Other <laughs> Sounds like you're just doing several things uh, in a very solid manner and being responsible with, with how you do it. Well, it's nice of you to say, yeah, well, I can't let, let go all the keys to the kingdom, but, uh, <laughs> but no, it's, 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 it's a marathon and, um, and we've been in this business now for, uh, for several years and um, look, uh, capital follows performance, as you stated, and, and we've been able to do, uh, do a good job with that. Um, with regard to the risks, because you always have to give a fair and balanced presentation, um, you know, I think, I think the investor investment objectives really define the risks. Um, so they want, they want stability of that principle. Nice thing about a non-listed uh, preferred stock is unlike traded preferreds, which generally come out at a par of 25, I mean, several of those hit, you know, 12 and $15. And I will tell you, um, if, as, as an investor yourself, when, when that happens during times of ultimate market disruption, um, you have to do your due diligence, but you have the opportunity to vulture purchase some, some securities which will mature at par. And of course, price and yield move in inverse relationships to one another. So, uh, you know, a, a six dividend at par is, is 12 at at $12 and all of those rebounded, most of them back up to, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23 at this point. So, so price stability. Um, and of course, as I was started to say, but didn't complete that the publicly traded preferreds are subject to those price fluctuations as they trade, whereas the non-listed preferred is designed to come out at a stated value. And unless you have a negative circumstance, which impairs that to maintain that while it pays that dividend. So dividend um, efficacy, price stability, uh, clearly. And then of course, there's the liquidity feature. And I believe anybody who is associated, who's issuing a preferred security that is associated with a public company has an advantage because they can be redeemed in cash and they can re be redeemed in stock. And there are several structural components that you can incorporate to ensure that if indeed it is in stock, that there is um, um, immediate tradability and, and um, uh, reduced fluctuation risk. Just a quick follow-up. So a lot of people may not understand. Uh, so a preferred share uh, gets a preferred position. Yes. How, how does that not hurt the common share position when that occurs? Well, um, you know, math rarely lies. So you, you ha it, it's, it, it, um, it, it does. So in, in essence, you have a stack that it has a denominator of 100. So if you, the entirety of your stack was in common stock, you would be you know, gauged in our business based on your adjusted or core funds from operations. And, and that would define whether or not you're, you're paying the, um, uh, the dividend from, you know, from those flows. Um, by splitting the capital stack, the denominator is in essence still 100. It's just, it's just split between those two entities. So you have the exact same net operating income. It's just that the, the preferred gets put into a priority position above the common. Okay, Sim simple enough. So let's jump over to uh, uh, 1031 issues right now. Uh, so Blue Rock, Blue, Blue Rock hits the grid of leading sponsors each year in the 1031 space, uh, raising capital. Uh, your focus has been in multifamily. Correct. So, you know, why do you believe that multifamily is the favored asset class for the 1031 exchange program? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, 
I'll tell you, Stacey, you, you know, when you look to the four food groups of, of commercial real estate, um, uh, on a macro level, it's office, industrial, uh, retail, and multifamily. And of course, hospitality, which is very binary in nature, um, based on consumer and corporate discretionary spending and really gets, really gets hit pretty hard in times of economic distress, as you might imagine. Um, and when you think about it, a 1031 exchange is, is, uh, is, is based on somebody owning an asset for a long time and, and then finally getting to, you know, monetizing that asset, but they're attempting to um, defer the taxes on, on, on that sale. And it probably represents a pretty significant portion of somebody's net worth. You have to protect those proceeds or you might be just better off paying the fiddler and, 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 and taking the money. All right. So, and they're generally also one-off transactions. It's a single asset. Now you can do portfolio 1031s, but for the most part, they're one asset. So there is no diversification, you know, spread of risk. So multifamily in our, in, in our, you know, our house view is, is it, it's, it's automatically self-laddered because you have, it's like taking a building and there's, there's, there's 200 and something tenants in it. So, and, and multifamily is, is the institutional favorite because it's generally stabilized to a mid-90s level of occupancy. It's just a question of what you're getting for rent. If we, we can sort of prove that up. If, 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 if you get to 97% least, you're probably not charging enough for rent. So you bump it 50 bucks and you can do that every month. You have malleability. And if you get down to 90, you know, 3, 92, then, then you're probably, you need to, to, to dial it back and you have that flexibility. Now, a lot of people are favoring net lease real estate, a triple net lease. And, and you know, I, I would caution, I would make sure you do your diligence because generally you have one tenant, so you're gonna be either 100% leased or you're gonna be zero. It's very binary in nature unless it's a multi-tenant asset. But more importantly, when you buy a piece of real estate, fee simple, you're buying three things, the land, the improvement, the property, the building, and the present value of the future income stream of that asset. And it's, and, it's, and it's valued and analyzed based on a methodology called discounted cash flow analysis. So generally, you're going to buy a highly stabilized asset with, you know, that has a 10-year or 12-year term on it. Your holding period is going to be seven or eight, eight years. Or, and, and when you go to sell it, there's only three or four years less. So like, a, like an option, it's sort of losing its time and intrinsic value. But unlike an option, it's not, it doesn't expire worthless. It is, I would take that one word and I would make it two. It's, it's worth less. You're not going to get the benefit of, an, of, a, of a possible renewal. So we think multifamily sustains values. It has uh, uh, tailwinds as a result of this demographic tsunami of, um, uh, of millennials and, and baby boomers flocking towards that. And frankly, during times of, uh, like, like COVID, we think that that's going to delay home ownership. And uh, it's our preferred asset class for a one-off transaction like that. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Thank you for that uh, simple explanation, Jeff. So we don't have a whole lot of time left. I'm going to move on into my uh, fourth and final question here. Okay. Um, you know this, advisors uh, are seeking, just like us all, to be well positioned coming out of this pandemic. Yes. Um, they want to capture outsized returns if they can, gen generally associated with uh, recovery from macroeconomic events. Can you give some commentary uh, on where you see real estate in the next uh, one, three, five years, and and in particular private institutional real estate. But I would even go, I would even say, what 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 does it look like in the next six months? We've got an right. election coming up. The end of the year is coming up. Uh, so in the next six months, and then out to the, through five years. 
Yeah, sure. What do you? Well, say? you're going to see you're going to see some escalated VIX uh, dynamics always in an election. You'll see some increased volatility. Uh, yeah, I've I've heard this new phrase now, the triple P, the post-pandemic portfolio. Uh, I think we're going to hear a lot of that. Uh, I, I got a kick out of that. But yeah, what I would what I would tell you, our, our house view is this, Stacy. And, and you know, it's funny because in my research on this, I actually found a piece that Blue Vault created years ago that was incredibly insightful, and it hit the bullseye. So as we look to real estate, we're starting to see some, some pretty, and especially IPR, we're starting to see some clear formation of this dynamic that has repeated itself every eight or 10 years. And frankly, you know, I'm more of a valuation guy. You have to, you know, it has to be based on substance. And, um, and, and one of the real clear sort of crystal ball prognosticators of where real estate is, is, is the comparison and juxtaposition between cap rates and treasuries. And historically, you would see probably a two to, you know, I think the 10-year average is 250 or 270 basis points of spread. But let me explain that. In essence, a 10-year treasury is backed by the full faith and credit of the federal government. It's, it's pretty much guaranteed. So real estate has risks. So what risk premium should an institutional investor or a retail investor get to incur the additional risks of, of real estate? And historically, it's been about 270 basis points. If it narrows like it did in 07 to a quarter of a point or a half a point, you're gonna see real estate um, lose value and, and institutional investors go away because they're not getting a sufficient risk premium. It would be like buying a, 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 a B-rated piece of paper when you could get the same yield for an investment grade AAA. You, you just wouldn't do it. Well, right now, um, cap rates and, 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 um, and treasuries have diverged to a plus one standard deviation. They're, it's about a 500 basis point spread, right? Cap rates are, are 10-year papers at about 50, 60 basis points right now. And, and, and you know, you're, you're getting a five or a, a six cap, depending on whether it's institutional or, or publicly traded. And when that happens, you're going to see the institutions hit that bid. It happened, it always happens about a year after a, a, a downside macroeconomic event. In 03, it occurred after the dot-com implosion and the, um, and, the, um, and the terrorist attacks. And the three and five-year returns for private institutional real estate following that were about 15% annualized. Uh, then it happened again after the great financial crisis. So ended in 09 in 10, uh, the three-year average was around 13% and the five-year average was 12.7. And we're seeing a formation of that exact same dynamic. And we think institutions are going to flock for that enhanced almost 2x, 2x risk premium. So we're, we're pretty bullish on, 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 on the recovery coming out of COVID. So what, what's the time horizon, though, uh, do you think for that? I mean, <clears throat> what, uh, how, how, quickly will, uh, how quickly will publicly traded real estate uh, get back to its norm, and how might that affect uh, a, a private institutional real estate? Sure. Well, publicly traded real estate is generally considered to be a forward-looking indicator. So in the downside, it tries to get out in front of it and be predictive, and it sells off generally. The rubber band stretches too far. And into a recovery, it tries to get out in front of it. So I think public real estate will actually recover in advance of private institutional, and it's done so historically. It's a wonderful indicator. And of course, our portfolio managers are likely quite focused on that. In that, we have a couple variables right now that are pretty determinant of, of economic recovery um, and therefore real estate recovery. It'd be tough to kind of to date stamp it because you know, we don't know whether we're going to have a second strain of, of COVID or how fast the uh, vaccine comes out. But historically, 
Uh, Stacy, it's been about a one-year hiatus for, for recovery, and then you start seeing those signs, and then a three- to five-year window of outperformance on a relative basis. So we're prepping for that. Of course, prior performance isn't, isn't indicative of future results, but it's, it's been pretty reliable historically. Well, Jeff, this has been fantastic. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you for joining us, and I uh, hope you'll come back and, and do this with us again soon. Um, if someone listening wants to find out more about Blue Rock, how, how can they best do that? Yeah, sure. Uh, first off, thank you very much, Stacey. It's been an absolute pleasure. Always uh, uh, wonderful to spend time with you. I've known you for so long, and uh, I just want to congratulate you. I, I remember when you founded Blue Vault, um, and it has emerged as one of, if not the preeminent research and due diligence um, and informational resources within the industry and just an amazing job of building a, a, a great company. So my, my highest compliments to you and we value our, our uh, relationship and, and, and partnership very, very much and the information we receive. Uh, with regard to, to, um, to, uh, uh, to reach Blue Rock, I think the website is best. Uh, uh, you can go to bluerock.com or bluerockcm, uh, which is capitalmarkets.com and a whole host of information is on there as well as contact information for uh, your dedicated wholesalers or any informational um, folks, due diligence, executives, et cetera. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, and to, to our audience, that's going to do it for this episode of Inside the Vault. We appreciate you joining us today. And we, uh, uh, we uh, hope that you'll plan to be with us again soon. Have a great day and thank you very much for joining us.